Calvary. Ooh. All right. I'll, we'll try this again. All right. There we are. Calvary. I ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. When you get there, just put your finger on verse 1. I'll join you there in just a minute. We're going to be on, it's on page 1,252 in your pew Bible, Acts chapter 1. I just celebrated a uh, special day recently. April the 14th is my pastor birthday. On April the 14th, 2014, we began our journey together as pastor and church which means we've just completed nine years together, and now we're two weeks into our 10th year. And some of you go, Jeff, we have felt every step of it. <laughs> it's been such a joy to be able to walk this path, and, and uh, I look forward to that many and more. God is good to us. My first sermon on that day uh, was from Acts chapter 1. For those of you who mark notes in your Bible that go, Jeff last preached on this, you may go back and find that that happened on 2014. And some of you, if you're really good, you're going to go, you, you spent a little bit of time on it in 2020. At the beginning of that sermon in 2014, I presented to you some facts. I presented to you that the Tennessee Baptist Convention, which was what it was called at that time, records show that from 1900 to 1972 that the church, the Tennessee Baptist Church, grew in numbers of baptisms annually, peaking at, in 1972, 32,000 baptisms in the state of Tennessee in Southern Baptist churches in 1972. And at the time in 1972, the state of Tennessee had a population of 4.1 million. From 1973 to 2013, which was, I did this in 2014, the number of baptisms reduced on average by 280 per year. Saw a small uptick in 2014 to 23,499. And the years since that time have reduced by 1,000 or more. And in 2021, the total number of baptisms, even though the number of churches is up, was 14,165. So 1972, 32,000. 2021, 14,165. But if you're also keeping track, the population of the state of Tennessee from 1972, 4.1, to now, we are just over 7 million people that call Tennessee home. Population up, number of churches up, baptisms down, does not seem like a good trend. Now, I recognize that baptisms are not what we're after. We're after conversions, people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. That is the goal. But what I have found is when people come to know Jesus as their Savior, they desire to be obedient to what Jesus says, and they find themselves going through baptism. 
And so it's possible today that you're a, you're a unique statistic, that you have come to accept Christ, but you've not been baptized yet. And I just want to point to Owen and Ayla's example to you and say, let God have control of that. I'm not here to create baptisms. We're here to create people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. But a baptism count is a really good indicator. Cumulatively speaking, taking the annual losses that we've seen and multiplying it out, that's nearly a half a million people, numerically speaking, that have not seen their lives changed for Christ due to just the mathematical decline that's happening since that time. Church, can I tell you that it appears as though something is not working properly? Do you know what we do when things aren't working properly? Something, right? We don't do nothing. I get my water bill. I always get about the same water bill. We've lived in the same place, done the same lives for all these years. I get a water bill, get a water bill, get a water bill, and then I get one going, oh, it's up. And then I get another one, it's up, and you blame it on, well, we took more showers, or we washed extra laundry, or we do something. And then it gets up, and then it gets up, and then it gets up. And eventually, you have to go, there's a problem. Something's wrong. And then you, you, you learn, and you figure out what's wrong. And then you do something about it. Because the person who goes, hey, I know what's on. I've got a commode in my house that's running nonstop. My, my water bills are going through the roof, but I'm not doing anything about it. You'd look at that person and go, that is just dumb. Right? Because do you know how easy it is to fix that problem, Jeff? Yeah, it's easy. It's inexpensive. It's not hard. But how many of you have a commode running at your house right now? Because sometimes we know there's a problem. I just had three people elbow their husband. It's amazing what you can see from just right here. But do you know what, we, you know what happens when we know there's a problem? We should be driven to do something about it, church. And can I tell you that those statistical trends create and pose a problem? Now, there are many reasons, but I believe that the number one reason that I would like to key on of why, cumulatively speaking, less and less and less and less people are coming to know Christ in the state of Tennessee every year. The reason I believe leads the list. The reason that we First Baptists can have an impact on this reason is the church is not following God's plan. I know that hurts to hear that. Bobby Welch, past president of the SBC, once stated in this building a number of years ago, the church cannot do business as usual and hope to change. Now, you've heard the definition of insanity before, I'm sure. The definition is insanity is doing the same things day after day, expecting different results. I read a recent survey that concluded that 11% of people, and I don't know, they've asked this, but 11% of people were asked if they were ready to receive Christ. Or 11% of the people that were asked stated that they would be ready to receive Christ if someone would just ask them. Scripture teaches us that the harvest is white. 
But yet our numbers don't show white. They show lack of harvest. Now, I don't know and can't stand behind the validity of this 11% number, but it was, but it does appear to me that we could probably do a better job of asking people to see if they can come to know Jesus. Amen? People are looking for something. Wouldn't you agree? This world is evidence. The way it's spinning in many different directions, people are looking for something to fill that void in their lives. We know, or at least I hope that we can collectively say we know, we know the answer to that void. The answer to that question is Jesus. So based upon that background, let's stand and read together Acts chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. Luke is the author. He writes this. He said, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Thanks, church. You can be seated. Keep your scripture open. If you're a note taker, get ready to write some things down. As I mentioned to you, the book of Acts was written by Luke. And it says here in verse 1, all that Jesus began. And notice what it said to do and to teach. Jesus, when he came, was busy every single day doing and teaching, showing and preparing. He was about doing the Father's work. Jesus lived, I believe, and this is going to be a a Jeff paraphrase, because I couldn't find this term in Scripture, but I believe that Jesus lived wide open for God every single day. So can I ask you a question? I mean, it says here that Jesus was doing and teaching up until the moment that the Father called him home. Are you busy for God? I mean, are you motivated daily to make your days count for God? Doing, teaching, 
pouring into lives, being obedient, listening to what the Holy Spirit of God would lead you to do. We should all live our lives wide open for God. Amen? I pray that you are. Verse 3 says that Jesus, this is post-resurrection, Jesus appeared to many, and he continued to teach. Jesus both left us an example and instructions. And we've seen many of these examples. If you notice, on Easter, we talked about how the tomb was empty. And last week, we talked about the restoration of Peter, Jesus still being on this earth, not yet ascended. And today, we're still Jesus not yet being ascended. God's Word is teaching us even how Jesus completed his time on earth is something for us to be taught and learn to be able to do this. But verse 4 says that this would be their final meeting with Jesus. And notice what Jesus told them. He told them to stay put in Jerusalem. Do you see that? Stay put and wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, it's an interesting thing. Addie and her pops love to build tower blocks. Pops really has these great architectural designs in mind when he starts to build. Addie just knocking them down, knocking them down, and knocking them down. Well, as she's gotten a little older, she started building a little bit more, but it became this, this thing we would build, and she would walk up, and she'd go, can I knock it down now? We got to the point we were asking. Or I'd walk up, and she'd get ready, and I'd go, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So I would walk up, and I'd be building, and she'd wake up. She'd walk, she said, wait. So she's learning. But she knew there was going to come a time when the waiting was over. And I knew there was going to come a time that no matter how cool that looked, it was all coming down. Waiting. There is a time to wait. And Jesus told his followers, wait. Stay put. Stay right there and wait till the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus tells them what will happen soon. He tells them in verse 5 that they will receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now, let's just make sure we're all in the same page now. Church, we are post-ascension. We are post canon of Scripture. We are everything but the book of Revelation complete in history. So we stand here being much more informed about things than the disciples were even in that moment when they were told to wait, the Holy Spirit's coming. We now know, based upon Scripture, that when someone comes to know Jesus as their Savior, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence immediately in their lives. Scripture says it's a deposit, it's a guarantee, but I don't want you to think that you got some little 4% of the Spirit guaranteeing you, and God's going to bring the other 96% one day. Let me tell you what you get when you get the Holy Spirit. You get all of the Holy Spirit when you profess Jesus as your Savior. And so today, if you profess Jesus as your Savior, if you know there's come a time when you've given your life to Christ, in that moment when you confessed faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit entered into your life. And if you're going, well, I don't ever feel the Holy Spirit in my life. 
Well, there could be some educational things where we need to help you understand what the Spirit's activity looks like so you'll begin to go, oh yeah, I do. That's what that is. Or it could be that the Holy Spirit's not there. And the only way to explain the Holy Spirit not being in a life is that that life is not yet saved. So the Holy Spirit has a role, but we now know in here 2023 that the Holy Spirit comes upon profession of faith in Jesus. But remember, in this Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you guys go here, you stay put, and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And so Scripture would teach that on down in Scripture that they went. After Jesus ascended, they went, found a place, and they stayed put up until the Holy Spirit came. And that's a really good thing for us to know and understand. We already have the Holy Spirit if you know Jesus. That's important for us to remember for the rest of this sermon. Verse 6, the disciples ask, okay, now is now the time you're going to restore Israel? It's interesting. They've been walking with Jesus for over three years now. They've seen all of this going on, and they are still yet not fully aware of what God's plan and purpose is going to be and how they're going to recognize it because they're saying, hey, is now the time you're going to restore Israel? They did not understand what Jesus had called them to do. Verse 7, Jesus said, it's not for you to know that. You know, I, I wish I was that pastor of yours as we enter our 10th year together, that every time you ask me a question, I can go boom and just flip to it and go boom. Do you know that there are lots of things that I do not yet know? And I wish I was better to be able to walk with you and help you. And I'll work with that. But do you also know that there are things in Scripture that are alluded to that we're not supposed to know? And you go, well, well, that don't seem right. Well, here's what I will do. I bet you that you'll have a much greater opportunity to understand what you're supposed to do when you complete doing the things you've already been told to I don't know about you, but when I was raised, all of a sudden, I'd be wanting to be about three steps ahead and going, hold it. Son, you've not even done what I just told you to do. Why would I tell you to do the next thing or the next thing? Get this done first, and then we'll talk about other things. We understand what's going on here. Jesus said, this is not for you to know, but verse 8, but anytime you see that, you need to understand something's getting ready to change in the opposite direction of what we were just talking about. Jesus said, those kinds of things are not for you, but let me tell you what is for you. And in this statement, look for this as we read it again. Jesus told them what they did not need to focus on in verse 7. But Jesus also tells them what they should be focused on Look at verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and into the end of the earth. Remember, they're being told of what's going to happen. Acts records that it has happened. And you have come to faith in Christ in a post-ascension, post-Holy Spirit world so you now get the Holy Spirit when you come. You're going, Jeff, why are you keep hammering that point home? You don't need to wait any longer. The disciples, go and wait. 
Holy Spirit's going to come. Go and wait. Go and wait. Go and wait. You know, sometimes the church is guilty of going and waiting. Do you know we're not called to, we're not called to go and wait. We're called to go and share. Go and make. Go and be a witness and testify. We're called to do this. So I just want to kill. You're going, the disciples were told to wait. Yes. But if you keep reading the book of Acts, they left that room eventually and got busy. Church, you don't have to wait any longer. So if you're waiting on somebody to go, go, start serving Jesus. Start being obedient to the commands of God. Yes, this means you. Okay, church, go. You don't have to wait any longer. But Jesus said in verse 8 something that we need to miss, not miss. He said that they were. Said that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me. They're telling them something. He says, when this happens, something's going to happen to you that's going to cause you to do something. And that's going to be a witness. Do you know that every single one of us this morning are witnesses for Christ? If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are a witness for Jesus Christ. You're going, Jeff, I've... I've not been sharing my faith. I've not been obedient. I've not been effective. I've not been, I've not been. I don't really feel like I'm much of a witness for Christ. Well, let me just categorize that just a little bit. You're just being a bad witness, right? You're being a witness for Christ. Every day you claim Christ and live your life, you are doing one of two things. You're either drawing people to Jesus John 12, 32, Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw people to myself. So you're either lifting up Jesus or you're not. You don't get a choice of I'm not ready yet. Not ready means I'm being ineffective as a witness. There are no neutral witnesses. You're either drawing people to Jesus or you're pushing them away. And verse 8 said, Jesus said that you're going to start in Jerusalem, which is where they were. They're going to go to Judea, which is the place you have to go to when you leave Jerusalem. You're going to go to Samaria and the end of the earth. You know, we just had secret church on Friday night and from 6 until 12.15. Yes, I'll never forget those 15 minutes. But from 6 until 12.15, we were studying the book of Jonah. And there was this application made that what God called Jonah to do is similar to what Jesus is telling us to do because he said, Jonah, I want you to leave where you are, which was right outside Jerusalem. I want you to go to Nineveh, and in order to do there, he had to go past Jerusalem, leave Judea, go through Samaria to get into what they would call, since they didn't like Assyria, modern-day Iran, that they would be in what they call the uttermost parts of the earth. They would be someplace else. So we need to understand this is not the first time this has been called. There's an example over example over example that we've been given of, of having to go and share. Jesus told them that they would be witnesses everywhere they went. Because when you look at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, there is no land that doesn't fit 
in that description. So everywhere you are, you are a witness for Jesus Christ. You know what a witness does? They just tell people what they saw, what they experienced. Do you know that it's uniquely personal? If we had the opportunity, and I've known many of you for over 25 years as Angela and I have been a part of First Baptist Church, and I've heard many of your stories, and we share those with each other, and we walk them with each other. And I know that if we could sit down and talk with the rest, we would all find that God has been good to us, and he's created a testimony in us that is uniquely us. Your testimony is that. It's yours. It's powerful. It's special. God wants to use it, and he'll help it be effective. Nobody else can share your testimony other than you. Have you experienced Jesus in a life-changing way? You see, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you shall be witnesses for me, not can be. If you know Jesus in a life-changing way, it should be near to impossible for you to keep that in. It should be coming out of your life naturally, all the time, being a witness. Verse 9, Jesus ascends to heaven. They watch him until he is out of sight. And while they were watching, two men dressed in white joined them. Now, could be the same two men that John chapter 20, verse 12 talks about. Luke chapter 24, verse 4 talk about, about two men dressed in white. Perhaps these are angels sent by God first to announce the resurrection of the Son of God. Now they have the privilege of making yet another important announcement. They said, this same Jesus that you see, he's going to come back that way. He's going to come back. He's going to come back again, church. Do you know that he's going to come back? Do you believe that Jesus is going to come back? I hope you do. If you do, if you know Jesus and if you believe he's coming back, then your life will definitely show it. That's what Scripture teaches. But that's not all these two men said. Man, it would have been cool if they said, fellas, you see that? He's going to come back again just like that. Period. Move on. That would be good. The reality is, is there's more to what they said. Verse 11, it says here, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? Have you ever been waiting for somebody at home? We're waiting for them. We're sitting in the living room. We've got windows. We can see them come through. And when they're a little bit late, we start walking up, or I start walking up to the blinds, and I'm looking down the road as far as I can. You're looking for them, right? We know this because somehow we believe that when we're waiting on somebody, that if we don't constantly keep a look for them, we're somehow going to miss them. It's not going to happen. I live on a dead-end street. I'm not going to miss them. They're going to come. But yet when we're waiting for somebody, we're always looking, always looking, always looking. And do you know what happens when I spend all of my time looking out my window, waiting for somebody to come? Do you know what I don't do anything else. What could I have done while I was just gazing out the window? So here the disciples have done this. And have you ever done this too? Try this, go outside. I don't know about you, but 
I know where I was when the eclipse came. You remember a few years ago, the eclipse came, and everybody could just stand up, and the whole world was basically just looking up. If you go out today, I guarantee you, if I stood outside today, or if I started to do this sermon, I started, if I just started looking right here and just started staring, at, and I'd look intently, I'd look, you know what eventually is going to happen in this room? Everybody else is going to start going, what's he looking at? And then some are going to start turning their heads and looking at it. And the people in the back are going to go, I don't have to turn my head. I'm already looking at it. We're just going to gaze at it. You know, we can cause people to gaze at things. These men, they ask them, what are you looking at? These men go, it's time to stop gazing. It'll soon be time to get busy. No time to stand still, we must go. And if you read the book of Acts, Acts records the birth of the church. Now, how did it grow? How did the church grow? Well, there was no Southern Baptist Convention. There was no Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. There were no associations, no missionaries. There were actually not even any churches at one point in time. So how did the church grow? Well, Philip Schaeff, a church historian, wrote this. He said, the church grew naturally from within. It attracted people by its very presence. It was a light shining in the darkness. The church literally grew from people who were so excited about what Jesus had done in their life that they had to share it with somebody else, and the book of Acts continually states that people were added to the church daily. We know this. Pentecost came, 3,000. Later on, 5,000. It just grew and grew and grew. You know what that tells me? Those witnesses in those early days, they were busy being witnesses, busy sharing about Jesus, what had happened. Now, I tell you every week I put the sermon and what I, I get done on Thursday, what I call the crock pot, and let it just sit there until I pick it back up again on Sunday. Except secret church happened this week, and God said, there's something you need to add into the crock pot. So we were talking about Jonah at secret church. And we're in the takeaways. It's probably 11.45 at night. We've been in this a while, and I've just taken a page from my notes, and if you were there, you've got these notes too. But I just want to share with you, there was this statement made, because Jonah, we know the story of Jonah. We know the way he said he knew God, but the way he did not do what God said. The way God got a hold of him, the way he still didn't have the attitude God wanted him to have. And we know that we left him sitting up on a hill pouting because of God. So there were these statements made that I think fit right now with this one. You know, in the book of Jonah, we are Jonah. That's who we are. And there was this statement made. It is possible for us to receive the mercy of God, yet resist the mission of God. Think about that for a second. And then they made these four statements. They hurt my feelings, but I wrote them down anyway. Talking about Jonah, and if we're Jonah, talking about us and talking about our job. Statement one is we all like our comforts. We like our stuff. And when we come to know Jesus, we go, okay, I've got it. I'm good. We like our stuff. 
Jonah liked his stuff. Jonah, therefore us, we lack concern for others. Generally, we live in a world where we go, every man fends for himself. That's how we think many times. Then there was this third point that got a little rougher on me. It said, uh, Jonah did not like, so therefore, Jeff, we do not like God's commission. We do not like that God told us to go and be a witness and share and be an example to people who need help. We don't really like doing that. We don't like God's call. And then this fourth one, as fourth ones do, got a little harder. We don't like God's character. Think about this for a second. Jonah eventually gave up what his problem was. He said, I knew you were going to do this. I knew that you were going to be loving and compassionate and powerful in their lives and that when they heard the message of the gospel that you were going to forgive them and I hate them and I don't want them to come to know you because I like my own stuff. Let them fend for themselves. I don't like this call you've given to me. And Jonah said, that's why I ran. Because I don't like your character. Because I knew you were going to do this. You know, Jonah, he's blaming God. He said, I knew you were going to do this. I knew this is the way you were going to act. That's why I didn't want to tell him. Man, that challenged me. Do you know that everybody needs Jesus? Amen? Here's a statement. We need Jesus to save us from our sin. And we need Jesus to transform us to live a life according to the mission he has given to us. Life is short. We know this, right? Whether it be hard diagnoses, whether it be natural causes, whether it be an auto accident that took people from our own families just in the last few days. Life is short. precious. It's important that we not waste a moment. Have you ever been reminded that life is short and you go, I'm going to live my life better. I'm going to live my life different. I want to make my life count. Can I tell you as a child of God, the way to do that, do what Jesus said, wait for the spirit. Okay, you got it. Don't have to wait any longer and go and be a witness. Just tell people what's happened to you. You don't have to be a theologian. You walk up and say, can I tell you what Jesus did to me? He showed me that I was a sinner. He said he loved me and he forgave me and he's transforming my life to the point that I could not but help come talk to you about Jesus. Do you know how hard that was? Not.
Church, we must be excited. We must be eager. And we must be available to God. Does God call us to do things like this? All the time. God called Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. God called Jacob. Here I am. God called Moses. Here I am. God called Samuel. Here I am. God called Isaiah. Here I am. Can I tell you, based on how I'm reading what Jesus just said there in Acts, God's calling you. What's your answer? I pray that your answer is, Lord, here I am. Whatever you want me to do. So at the end of Secret Church, which is where I'll end our service, because where do we go from here, church? I think we got to get out of the church and into the world. We got to get our heads from looking up and our heads looking around. We got to get out of our comfort zone. We got to get into trusting God. We got to get out of our own power and get into the power that God has promised to give us. Isaiah 55, 10, 11 said, The word will not return void. I will accomplish what I please. John 12, 32, I've already referred to, I will draw people to myself if I am but lifted up. Isaiah 43, 19 says, I'm ready to do a new thing. Today, God is calling us into action, and perhaps it is time for us to stop gazing up into the sky. So at the end of Secret Church, I think it was, no, I know it was. It was like 12, 12. And we were asked, write a prayer. Write a prayer. Here's the prayer I wrote straight from my notes. Dear Lord, I will do what you call me to do to help people come to salvation in Jesus, even though it may cost me. Whatever the cost may be, it will be worth it. And it is the best way for my life to be spent. Every time a minute passes, you have spent a moment of that precious life. What are you going to be known for doing with your time? Now, I'm not into setting goals, even though the state of Tennessee has set a goal of seeing 50,000 people baptized and set on the road to discipleship of Christ every single year. I'm not here to push that goal for you. I'm here to encourage you to have one goal, to every day effectively allow your life to be spent the way God desires. You know what will happen? People will come to know Jesus. Church will grow. Spiritual maturity will grow. We won't even be able to keep the waters from flowing in baptisms. I want to direct us to a goal that's the originator of all of it. Let's just do what Jesus told us to do. Amen?